I, I I think of I think of like going to facets. <laughs> That's when I think of technical difficulties. March and I had a hilarious moment. We went and saw some movie there. I think it was uh, Generation uh, P. I think we were seeing that at uh, facets together. And Marsh had like made a comment as we were going in, just about like, well, I hope hope these idiots can like keep their act together here today or whatever. And not only did they drop a reel and we like had to pause the movie for like 15 minutes, they then came in and told us all like, um, we're sorry about that. Uh, free concessions for everybody. Go get yourself a Coke or some popcorn or whatever. And then we walked out to get something and Marsh was like, yeah, can I get like a Coke or something? And like, I forgot what you ordered. And the guy was like, actually the machine uh, just broke. <laughs> 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 and we just went back inside and sat and waited for them to put the fucking reel back on. Like. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He won't have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Oh, tell the truth, this guy's starting to get on my It's hot. It's hot out there. Let's we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello, friends. Welcome to the Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts, Eric Marsh, and with me today, as always, are Ryan Saunders and Andrew Stasulis. The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature program where one of the hosts picks a topic and the other two hosts pick movies in reaction to that topic and we come on here and we have it out. It's episode 68 and it was my turn to pick and uh, as I said last episode we had a lot of technical difficulties in the in the recent weeks and and I thought that would be a, a good thing to address and I should of course acknowledge as well uh, that this was actually Ryan's idea for a topic I just stole it from him uh, in our banter uh, in a text thread because you know after all our difficulties uh, thought it would be good to hone in on that technical difficulties is the topic and uh wow i i I figured something like this might happen and that's that's why (laughs) i love you guys because on the one hand i i wanted something science fiction something you know in that realm obviously and i also wanted maybe a bit of a curveball or maybe a, a different sort of interpretation of it uh and You did it again. You made me a very happy boy. And although I had seen uh, both of these films before, I was very happy to uh, revisit both of them. So why don't you introduce them to our audience, Andy? Even though your film takes place uh, (laughs) in in the future, it was made first. So why don't you tell us about what you brought? I would be willing to venture a guess that almost all of our listeners are familiar with Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey, a uh, seminal science fiction film about a lot of technical difficulties that befall a, a group of astronauts in outer space. 
it's certainly considered, you know, by many people to be one of the greatest science fiction films of all time, right? But I would also be willing uh, to put some money on the fact that there's quite a few people who don't know that there was a sequel made to 2001. And that is the film that I chose. From 1984, it's Peter Hyams' 2010, The Year We Make Contact. This film picks up nine years after the disaster on board the Discovery, in which a group of Russian and American astronauts are are headed back, headed back to the moons around Jupiter to make sense of what happened in that previous mission, what technical difficulties befell that group. You know, there there certainly uh, is an understanding of the monoliths at this point, well, they're trying to understand the monoliths more. Uh, they know that something went wrong with Hal, Hal 9000, the, the, <laughs> the, the real star of the show in 2001, I think. But, you know, there's still a lot of questions to be answered. And so a, a team is, is put together. Uh, you know, at the height of Cold War tensions, a, a diplomatic mission, if you will, Russians and Americans working together to to solve mysteries, the mysteries of space, time, and existence, and certainly, where the hell did Dave Bowman go? Uh, I think it's a it's a really good film. Clearly, it's 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 overshadowed by by 2001. But I but I, I have to stress, you know, and I'm I'm sure we're going to talk a lot of, about this. It's a very very different film, a very different experience from. Uh, Stanley Kubrick's film, you know, 2001, and 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 uh, a testament to Hyams, you know, is that he he said that he wanted to make a film that did not require you having seen the previous film. You know, he wanted to make a a science fiction movie for people who hadn't seen 2001. Now, of course, it's probably hard to imagine people who who would <laughs> yeah. go to see 2010 who hadn't seen 2001, but but really, I, I think, and I'm sure we'll, we'll get into that, in many respects, I, I think he, he kind of is is able to, to handle that quite well. He's, he's really able to achieve that because, you know, this is a, a, a much more straightforward story in a certain respect, it's, it's it's trying to kind of like answer a lot of the the kind of lingering haunting questions that that make 2001 such a perplexing uh, experience and and you could argue whether or not you think that was even a necessary thing i don't know but in spite of that i think we have a really 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 solid sci-fi film about you know people in space encountering their own set of technical difficulties on this mission. It's got a, a great cast. Uh, it has amazing, amazing uh, practical effects for the time. And uh, I think it's, it's even if it's a little 
naive in perhaps you could argue its 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 heart and its its ultimate mission, its ultimate goal. Uh, I think it's a it's a film that you know people should see and and not just as like a sort of oddity. I think it's a it's an excellent film, and I, I thought it would be a lot of fun to to bring it to the podcast today because I I knew Marsh was a fan, and I also uh, assumed that that like me. It had been a long time since uh, you'd seen it, Marsh. So that's the film that I brought. 2010, the year we make Contact. Thank you very much. Ryan, why don't you tell us about what you brought? I like that Andy mentioned the fact that 2010 sort of goes out of its way to explain the what you could probably call technical difficulties that occur ambiguously in 2001, A Space Odyssey, because the film I chose, I also thought, was a really good example of exploring a technical difficulty and trying to make sense of it through the act of filmmaking and found footage editing. So the film that I brought is one of my all-time favorite films, and it like struck me like a bolt of lightning uh, a few days after you had said that the topic was technical difficulties. I was thinking, how can I approach this? Because I, too, was looking at sci-fi films. But then I remembered the great 1992 film, Videograms of a Revolution, compiled and directed by Harun Faraki and Andre Ujika. The film itself concerns the December 1989 revolution in Romania, where then-dictator leading the country in the Communist Party, Nicolae Ceausescu, uh, was giving his last final speech, a big rally, at least he didn't know that it was going to be his last final speech. This event, of course, was widely covered by a multitude of television cameras, but this production was invaded by reality, and soon there was a technical disturbance in the arrangement of things. In the midst of his speech, there was chaos. They think some shots were being heard, and the speech had to be abandoned, and Ceausescu had to be flown away as protesters on the streets took over. After the demonstrators start taking over the city, they also then take over the television studio. And that is where most of this footage comes from. The revolution ended up being broadcast live on television to viewers in the country. And it all was sort of unfolding in real time on television. Much of this stuff was interrupted initially when it was being broadcast, but Faraki knew that this footage all existed somewhere, and that's when he got in touch with Andre Ujica, who had many connections in Romania, to get access to this footage. So the film itself is a compilation of over 120 hours of footage, both from professional television cameras and also from amateur videographers and photographers who were capturing everything as it was unfolding. Because of this, we get to see picture-in-picture picture of what was being broadcast on television. We get to see glimpses at actual glitches that were happening as the footage was decaying, as the chaos of a revolution was disrupting the regular orders of a television broadcast. And we get that and so much more. We get that specific Harun Faraki flavor of sort of reflecting on the visual texture and quality of an image, reflecting both on what they were assuming the cameramen were thinking about as they were capturing these events. And it ultimately becomes this just beautiful and fascinating reflection on history, art, 
what we think we're recording versus what we're actually capturing on film and how we make meaning of events through editing them together, looking at them from multiple perspectives. It's a great big meditation and it's a just a great big beautiful film. It's one of my all-time favorite films. I'm, I'm very excited to talk about it. You know, when some people say the, the great lines in cinema, like, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn, or forget it, Jake, it's t Chinatown. I always think of, if someone had to press me for a favorite quote in cinema, that is, The cameraman had received instructions to pan to the sky if anything unexpected occurred. And that's a line from this film that I think about all the time when I think about how we're told to capture reality, how we're told to capture events. And um, so we're going to chew over this a bit more together, but plenty of technical difficulties on display uh, here in Videograms of a Revolution, both the technical difficulties of a production and real life. Uh, so yeah, that's the film I brought. Thank you very much. I think the the most obvious thing to, I guess, root these films in that they share, you know, at least uh, on the surface, is, of course, the Cold War context, right? Because we have 2010, a film that, in putting American and Soviet astronauts in space together, can only, of course, become a kind of dialectic about those real-life tensions. And... Then, obviously, we get the fall of Ceausescu, which is, I believe, like the last of the satellite revolutions to occur mm -hmm. in 1989. And one of the most violent ones, although Harun Faraki may have us thinking maybe some of that violence didn't actually happen. Um, and yeah, so... Obviously, there's, you know, there is in, in both films, there are uh, pleas for unity and pleas for, uh, you know, people coming together amidst all of these tensions. Uh, and I think it's both, uh, you know, as you, you might have mentioned, Andy, maybe a little naive uh, on Hyam's end, you know, but I think they both connect uh, in... Oh, God, I don't even... I, I was going somewhere, but it's like... Um... No, I know what you mean. It's really complicated because I was obviously having the same thoughts and maybe we can sort of parse this out together because I think there's something really interesting about the connection between these two films in the idea of a viewer experiencing a political crisis filtered through a different medium. So it's obviously really extreme in 2010 because we have the astronauts who are aboard a spaceship extremely far away from Earth, but they're obviously not able to see these things live as they're happening. They're getting reports of these tensions between the United States and Russia as it's all being played out in Latin America. It's a crisis that's constantly escalating. They're wrapped up in the middle of it, and they're at the mercy of their governments as they're up in space, as absurd as that would seem, right? Like they should be just assisting each other out there. But then I was also thinking about how videograms of a revolution in that similar type of perspective, we have an event that's being broadcast for an audience, but then also having that being suppressed through the lens of a technical difficulty when feeds are being cut out and only specific things are being shown and people lose access. And I guess that's an interesting comparison and contrast where videograms is an act of granting access 
going through the archive, sharing as much material as possible, while in 2010, we've just got government representatives, you know, giving the astronauts the scoop. This is this is how it's got to be. You are an outsider here. You don't have access to history as it's unfolding. Yeah, I mean, I think one, just speaking about 2010, uh, specifically right off the bat, that, that, you know, clearly separates this from, from 2001. And I think it's a reflection of when both... You know, the first book by Arthur Clarke was written, which was right around the time of, of Kubrick's film. And then the the second book uh, came just shortly before this production in the 80s. So he almost had a 20-year gap between his his books. But, like, what's, what's to me really, like, interesting about it is, right, that in the 60s when they wrote this and they were thinking about, you know, 40 years from then, it, it, it's like in 2001... The idea of the Cold War is is like long gone. <laughs> you know, the, the idea, right, is that well, by two thousand one, we're probably past all this dumb yeah. sh- political shit, right? We have set our sights on the cosmos. So there's like there's like no political material in two thousand and one, right? But but then this comes along, and in the the timeline of the the films, the stories, only nine years has transpired. And it's like, like the politics are front and center. This as much, as much as this is a, a, a science fiction movie about the cosmos, this is a movie, like you said, about the cold war and about our relations coming out in 1984 at the height of Reagan's, you know, saber rattling and, and attempts to throttle the 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 dying Soviet uh, empire around the world. So, yeah, it's it's kind of like a weird thing to 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 sort of like again like put the those two films together, two thousand one and 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 two thousand ten. But when you put it this way, it's like yeah, these films are both like so much a product of the time, that time, the eighties, the, the brink of, of, you know, cold war hysteria and paranoia and, 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 a, and an idea of a changing global order. And yeah, I think that the way it's handled in, in 2010 is, is, is like, you know, trying to get us to put our face in it, to, to think beyond it, you know, but, but look up at the, you know, in a way, Ryan, it's like your whole thing about like point your camera up to the sky. Yeah. <laughs> it's like in the in the case of in the case of Rockyville, they're telling them that just so like you know people can't see what's happening on the ground. You know, it's like about obscuring your vision. Whereas in 2010, it's like yes, but look at the sky to sure. really see what's important <laughs> out there, to really see how how much you know there is to 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 really like think about you know where to put our imaginations and our minds and that sort of things so yeah like Faraki's film is just it's 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 so much an attempt to make sense of what's happening on the ground right the 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 feet the the feet of the people marching towards a demonstration you know stomping through the corridors of a of a tv station the 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 nuts and bolts of a a a huge, a huge upheaval in a, a, a country's identity, in in the the politics of the Cold War, and in 2010, everyone's just like, man, like, 
are we really still fucking, you know, blockading each other's navies over some small fucking country somewhere? Like, what the hell's going on with us? So I think, too, it's maybe important to point out that the the Cold War aspect of the the script of 2010 is not in the novel. That is a a Hyams auteurism touch. And I think reflecting on Andy, what you were saying, like think about when 2001 came out, right? It's the late sixties, certainly the height of, of, you know, descent and things like that. But for a guy like Hyams, he, uh, you know, Watergate is to come, you know, and Capricorn one is to come. And I see 2010 now as, yeah, a very post Nixonian kind of movie, you know, just this. And, and obviously there's like jabs at Reagan, I think explicitly in the film as well. But I think for a guy like Hyams, I know he he was very much disillusioned by Vietnam because he had been a, an anchor, a news anchor and a reporter in the mid 60s. And so, like, for him, this guy just had a series of disillusionments, like most Americans. And you feel that in 2010, that he's both, like, commenting on the present, but also reflecting on, like, yeah, what has happened since... 1969 for me right and right writes it into the story and clark's pacifism of course is there and then they're joined in this like you know melding of their sensibilities because you know we can we can always say uh it certainly is a peter hyams film he produced it wrote it shot it and directed it and oh, yeah. was involved in every aspect of the production yeah and its development i mean it's like 2010 is a movie about imagination on a certain level, you know, and and trying to take us to places that we 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 only dream of, and and you know, if if only we if only we dreamed bigger, you know, and again connecting it to that stuff about you know, Hyams formative years during the the upheaval of the late 60s you know the mantra of 68 in 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 france was imagination is power imagination is power but you know in the in the case of like faraki and the romanians and the revolution it's like we don't have time to think about the fucking stars you idiot like we have to <laughs> we have to make sure that the telephone station stays connected we have to make sure that that we can get our messages out we have to we have to figure out the name of our of our new political party you know it's like it's it's the it's the chaos of a moment that requires so much attention to uh to like to the present right the future will have to sort itself out but but we have all these again going back to ryan's intro like technical difficulties to just like wrap our hands around before we can even think about what comes next yeah absolutely i was even thinking about two all of those logistics that are so essential to every moment of videograms of a revolution, piecing together how we create this new order, how we organize ourselves. Because there's just so many scenes of like men screaming at each other, just talking over each other in these television studios, trying to figure out what exactly is going on. And like a great science fiction film, there is still a great deal of logistics being, you know, talked through and dealt with in 2010, especially since 
many of them are just sort of made up things and i i like that kind of stuff i like when they go over like the mechanical qualities of things with the spaceships and marsh has got his finger raised are you telling me that oh, this is like real nasa stuff Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the things are quote unquote made up as in they are scientific theories. Mm-hmm. Himes worked directly not only with NASA, but specifically with the Jet Propulsion Lab and Arthur C. Clarke on every aspect of the, sh- the stuff they did to make sure that it was feasible. And then they would all like bicker over design and what was possible, you know, for it to look like, but Mm. like it is literally rooted in like all these consultations with, with scientists. Oh yeah. I mean the, one of the, one of like the big set pieces in, in the film in 2010 is a sequence in which they have to, to, to pull off this, this complex maneuver known as arrow breaking. And it, it, it seems like one of the most like out there science fictiony elements of the movie where they're, you know, we're going to, we're going to slingshot our way, you know, using a, a planet's gravitational pull and then break through the atmosphere of the, the, you know, the nearby moon in order to conserve fuel and, you know, do this crazy slingshot maneuver where it feels like the fucking whole, spaceship is going to come apart, come apart, you know, with every like nut and bolt. Uh, but, Mm -hmm. but like, again, like from, from an, like an astrophysics standpoint, like Hyams was very clear as saying like this, this comes straight from NASA. This is what they said they would do. Like it is again, perhaps (laughs) at this point still theoretically possible, but it's basically like, uh, in, I think as he put it in an interview, I saw, you know, astronomically possible. (laughs) The theory is, we will enter the outer layer of Jupiter's atmosphere using what is called a balut for a shield. The atmosphere will slow us down and Jupiter's gravity will grab hold of us and slingshot us around behind the dark side. If all goes well, we'll wind up in a gentle orbit around Io. It's dynamite on paper. Of course, the people who came up with the numbers on the paper aren't here. Since no one has ever done this before, everyone up here is as scared as I am. The difference is, they're busy. I have nothing to do but wait for it to happen. I hope this is all worth it. Well, then that makes perfect sense as to why I was so attracted to these logistics, because they were so well considered then knowing that they were based in in reality, because I really do love that stuff. I'm not like a, I do like science fiction films, but like in particular, I'm like a junkie for that sort of thing. I love like the level headed, cool, like reciting all these details of the mechanics, things I like just can't wrap my head around, don't understand at all. I mean, I've always said one of the reasons Tulane Blacktop is my favorite movie is because I feel like it's these men that are speaking a language I'm unfamiliar with. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't actually know how cars work. But when you hear it and you hear them talking with confidence and they know what all these pieces do, it almost has this poetry to it. But it is a really funny, like, counterpoint then with those like heated arguments in in videograms when you have these as much as there's some heated confrontations in 2010 just all these crises happening and them like staring at monitors giving each other advice on like you know how they need to approach these situations like specifically the science they need to do and then even just the wonder when there is a technical difficulty about what it might mean in a philosophical way to their theories both of these films in their own interesting and unique ways, are procedurals. 
uh, they're they're both trying to to sort of like solve certain uh, mysteries and 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 lingering questions and curiosities. 2010 is is you know what the hell happened at the end of 2001, right? I yeah. mean, like so much of it is 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 seems rooted in that of trying to be like let's 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 clear a few things up here for people. But truly, but yeah, to your point, Ryan. I mean, like it is it is a film which mostly is about this group of astronauts like getting to where they need to be to confront the question and i think so many of the pleasures in the film are really that they're 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 just sort of like us hanging out with this cool group of scientists and astronauts as they 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 get there they get to the brink of of an understanding this question and and so much of that is just how the hell technically can we pull all this off and in the case of you know videograms i almost think in the baudrillardian sense here right it's it's faraki himself uh trying to solve the crime the crime that obsessed baudrillard who murdered reality, right? Where we gotta figure this out. Who who the fuck killed the real? And and I'm gonna try to pick up these pieces here. I'm gonna go to this crime scene, the crime scene of the the 20th century, right? This this massive, massive crime scene. And I'm just gonna gonna throw myself into one part of it and use all the video forensics I can to try to try anyway and and answer this 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 question that makes me think you know really the experience of 2010 is is kind of hawksian it's this group adventure it's about bonding and professionalism and how really how good these astronauts are because they face a lot of dangers and and really they come out ahead uh, in the end with some problems along the way but like they're really solving problems and so you have this kind of like classical hawksian thing you know it's Hyams. he's not trying to reinvent the wheel he's trying to tell a popular entertainment you know mm-hmm. a three bagger a lot of popcorn uh the classic Hyams. and on the other hand right we have the sort of like Soviet Zygavertov uh, mind of Harun Faraki, right? Where he's going to assemble, yes, reality into this this crazy construction. Um, and they're just so, you know, obviously just such diametrically opposed uh, filming style, <laughs> your, your film styles, right? I don't know. I was really, I, I was really into this double feature. I gotta be honest. Like... <laughs> Yeah, I, I can't believe because I watched 2010 first, and I was like seeing t- somehow seeing 2010 in in videograms for yeah. what that's worth. Yeah, they really complemented each other in ways I wasn't expecting. I mean, even this is anecdotal, but I experienced two technical difficulties while watching both films, or at least I thought I experienced one with 2010 because it opens with that like garbled voice of of Dave. My God. God. It's full of stars. Yeah, we'll we'll use that audio clip. But when it first started, I thought like, ah, shit, there, there must be something going on with my TV settings with the audio codec. And I like backed out of the film, tried to like see if there was something wrong and put it back on. 
but I was convinced there was something wrong. And then I literally had a technical difficulty with videograms because after we had paused for some reason, something got corrupted with the subtitles and I like had no subtitles for five minutes of the movie. And I, I was like, the subtitles on this aren't amazing. Maybe this is on purpose. But then I realized it was a literal problem. But yeah, even beyond that, like anecdotal bit of technical difficulties, I was really taken by that investigative quality you were mentioning, Andy, like how it is, it does feel like a procedural in videograms and how much of 2010 is about explaining these lingering questions that arise from encountering 2001. You encounter 2001 and you wonder, what do all these pieces mean? What There's all these little gaps in the details. And Videograms is about, in a way, these two filmmakers who encountered this footage and have encountered the history associated with it and are trying to piece it all together. I mean, just the way that they compose all of this coverage for singular events, where it shifts between high-quality broadcast cameras, amateur photography, lower rent uh, television cameras, and even some like eight millimeter home movies that are capturing it from different angles. And we'll see a single moment such as a resignation when the government officially resigns, the, the communist government resigns. We see it happen. Cut. We start over. We're from another angle. This time the image is like a little grainy or decaying a bit more. Cut. It happens again. And it's all about that perspective, this investigation. What are we looking at? What does this mean? What does it mean to capture it in this way, you know? This battle has now been going on for almost 24 hours. But despite their superior firepower, the troops aren't able to winkle out the snipers who are still loyal to Ceausescu. I'll do it again in a second. now been going on for almost 24 hours but despite all their firepower the troops are not able to winkle out those men still loyal to Ceausescu this battle has now been going on for almost 24 hours but despite all their firepower these troops are not able to winkle out those snipers still loyal to Ceausescu it's something that Wiseman does a lot, which is show you the mediated image being created through these, you know, these repeats, right? Mm -hmm. You see a reporter, you see him in a fucking war zone and then being like, ah, cut, you know, we got to run it again. It's, it's, you know, it's not right. I said this wrong. And, and again, it, it reveals so much and that's so much what videograms is doing, doing right is exploring not just the mediated image and how television breaks down, but also how the forces, all of the forces surrounding the revolution are vying for control of the mediated image as well. Yeah, there's a there's a point later in the film, I think, when they're really, you know, trying to to sort of put a, a conclusion on their their thesis where Faraki and and his co-director. I don't want to just give all of this to Faraki, right? But they're they're like pontificating about the relationship between the camera and the event, and the possibilities that were seen uh, historically speaking with the arrival of cameras, with the arrival of our ability to sort of you know capture 
real life. And I'm putting that in air quotations for all of our listeners at home. <laughs> On this day, the cameras are gathered in the room at the weekly newsreel studio. They are pointed at the television set, anticipating an important announcement. For the same reason, the streets are deserted. Everybody is watching and hoping for images from a single camera which still has access to what is happening. Camera and event. Since its invention, film has seemed destined to make history visible. It has been able to portray the past and to stage the present. We have seen Napoleon on horseback and Lenin on the train. Film was possible because there was history. Almost imperceptibly, like moving forward on a Mebius strip, the side was flipped. We look on and have to think, if film is possible, then history, too, is possible. This is, of course, taking me back to to uh, my my period in grad school with all these like rabid, you know, foaming at the mouth uh, post-structuralists and deconstructionists who who used to yell at us anytime we said something was an event. Like we would get yelled at by our professors who would just be like, "Do you even know what an event is? There's no such thing as an event," you know, <laughs> like yeah, the, like this dude. I felt bad. There was like this one girl who who was planning like an exhibition of films and she was calling it event and she got fucking like chewed out where they were like you can't call it an event if it's pre-planned like whoa you know like just we were terrified like we would stutter like event would start to come out of your mouth and you'd catch yourself because you weren't allowed to call something an event you know right right uh but but really like right i mean an event you know for for them and the philosophers that they were they were beating us over the head with you know an event in that regard was was a disruption you know with certain with certain philosophers that we were looking at you know Baudrillard as i mentioned earlier and and Badiou and some of these others right an event is a disruption an event, an event can't be you know advertised on tv right then it's it's not an, an event. An event is when the 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 apparatus of of the media breaks down in their view, and I think that's what this film is about, and that's what Faraki uh, means when he's when he's talking about the sort of Mobius strip of film and event twisting and flipping at times, you know, and how cinema or cameras more specifically are able to capture history, but problematically what happens when it flips around, right? Uh, you know, when, when it's like the cameras are there to also kind of create history. And I think that's what you see in some of those moments that you guys have, have described very, uh, very well, you know, like it, it isn't just that these different cameras were able to capture you know, the moment that the, the resignation of the, 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 you know, prime minister was delivered to the people. But more interestingly, when he points out that the, the live TV cameras weren't able to actually capture it at the time, they didn't have the, the, you know, like the dish set up in time. So they had to have him 
announce the resignation again. This historic thing, right? Uh, and and other moments of sort of like staging. And and in this film, I mean, it is tied uh, together like so masterfully and so well, you know, that that we see something and we think it's so spontaneous. And then we get to, again, through the procedural aspect of the film, kind of like see it lose its luster uh, as people are kind of like, now we got to take that again. We, you know, which one was the real one? Was it the first time you resigned or was the real resignation, you know, after take seven or eight when they were like, got it, nailed it. You know, like that's the resignation that everyone saw. That's the resignation that was broadcast to 2 million Romanians or something, you know, but historically speaking, that wasn't the actual event. Oh, I said event. I'm not supposed to say that, you know, right? There's no <laughs> such thing. Uh, even like you mentioned the, 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 the BBC, I'm assuming it was a BBC correspondent. You know, there's that great right. moment with yeah. him where, you know, clearly for, for TV and for our sake, you know, for all the mouth breathers at home going, nice, look at this, a revolution on TV. You know, they've, they've stationed that guy in a very risky place you know he has got his back turned to a firefight unfolding behind him you know as 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 troops are are attempting to to storm some building to root out some snipers who are shooting at everything and everybody and this poor fucking guy you know he has to do take after take of saying the same thing over and over again and you can see him getting like more and more nervous as like take it again take it again do it again and then what's amazing is like Faraki then comes back to later footage of that guy when he's not having to be in front of the camera and the dude is like cowering behind a concrete wall which is where you should be in that situation right but it's all about the the sort of like staging of of quote events oh man yeah uh, there's a, you know, Baudrillard, of course, wrote about the Romanian Revolution <laughs> and about how it was like tele this weird televised thing, right? Where does the where does the real begin and where does the the television end, you know? And and specifically in the context again of like I think everything, the the fact that Ceausescu had such a very strong control over the media apparatus in Romania uh, is a huge part of the story here as well, because like all of these people have been, you know, seeing yes, like pro regime shit their whole lives. And that yes, starts to break down. And, and Baudrillard asked, uh, you know, the devilish question, uh, why would the image once liberated not have the right to be false? And there's a part here, too, that's mentioned in the film. They don't really dwell on it. You may have to know some, like, you know, background. But really, like, the, the revolution itself kicks off not in Bucharest, where most of the film takes place, but in Timisora. I don't know if I'm butchering that. Uh, but it was, like, a rural sort of protest where, uh, you know, security forces opened up on people and people got killed. Um, but conversely, uh, not shown on Romanian TV, but shown to countries all around the world were footage of graves. These graves were not the graves of the people killed in the recent incident. And part of the whole global outpouring of support 
come came from those images which were false right uh, and that's a whole nother element too is like throughout the film we hear people gossiping rumor rumors are flying about literally everything no one has good information you know and again it's like then in that context everyone's just like battling (laughs) battling over the tv station and Mm -hmm. yelling at each other because information is now just being thrown everywhere and everyone is like insanely paranoid i was thinking about how the truth of the image is constantly being called into question in the film and even the reality of the situations as reflected in these images, right? Like there's a moment where late at night there's a speech being given and they talk, they, they stop everyone because they keep saying like gunshots are happening. Like, and someone announces like, what's happening? Are shots being fired? And people in the audience are yelling, yes, shots are being fired but we can't hear those shots. The camera isn't picking up the sounds of gunfire. And even knowing that that person can't hear it, you wonder, can we, you know, is this, are there shots being fired? Is this all hearsay? What is the truth here? And I love how at the beginning of the film, really, Faraki does teach us how to read these images. I mean, the whole film is about how we read images. And I think it's something that this is a very much the Faraki flavor of the film in terms of the two filmmakers because Andre Ujica ended up making another found footage film about uh, Nikolai Ceausescu that doesn't involve narration, doesn't involve comments on the aesthetic qualities of the images or about any suppositions about what the cameramen were thinking. And Videograms is really front-loaded with that quintessential Faraki narration where one of the first images we see at a great distance of demonstrators, Faraki decides to just describe the blue wintry light, the way that the image is arranged, what the camera is able to pick up versus what it isn't able to pick up, what gets lost in the foreground, what gets lost in the background. The image in the blue wintry light is divided. The walls in the foreground and the action in the background pertain to different temporal frames. The image is unequally divided. The major portion is occupied by the foreground, which is not the focus of attention. The event has been shifted to the background. The camera gets as close to the event as the lens allows. And he introduces the whole project as this aesthetic exercise for us in its investigation of the truth of images what was the can you repeat the baudrillard quote one more time just so i (laughs) yeah why would the image once liberated not have the right to be false yeah and i mean if i'm understanding that correctly or at least just the kind of things it's triggering in my mind there is so much of faraki trying to liberate these images from the truth of the incidents and how also these incidents then find themselves rendered false because of the way they are captured such as the resignation this resignation of the government didn't happen because it wasn't captured on film but we do see that on film from an alternate camera right and it's like where does the truth come in what is the authority here all these questions yeah i mean it's it's a it's about the violent struggle at all times to narrativize the chaos of 
the world and exactly. and how the 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 various media entities that sort of govern us uh they it's like they they all have to work so desperately to on a certain level like make sense of things for us right you know tv is is that fucked up thing that likes to show us how the world is this this you know this place that's that's filled with with violence and danger and chaos and and horrible things and it 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 fills us all with you know dread and anxiety and paranoia and 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 hysteria and yet then it offers itself as the only antidote right it's like it's like you know it's it's feeding us this this ambivalence and then you know it is saying but stay tuned for more right stay tuned for us to try to explain all of this to you right so it's this it's this this constant tension especially in this film between very 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 confusing moments in history where where no one really seems to know what the fuck is going on communication is broken down right but we have to somehow try to like make order of things and I, I love there's even a moment where you know uh at the tv station there's like this guy i guess who's in charge of the fucking tv station and there's a guy who sort of barges in who they say like called himself a colonel at the time but later would walk that back or something right that he like used that to get into the tv station or whatever and they're they're talking about how like they need loudspeakers they have to get on you know we we have to adjust the people we have to do all this stuff to to calm people to create a sense of order and there's cameras around capturing this interaction, but there is a moment when these two men are like, look, um, can I talk to you, but away from the TV cameras? <laughs> and Faragi's even like, what was it that in this moment they felt they had to discuss away from the mm -hmm. cameras? They didn't want an image of being sent out, right? So again, this understanding that, well, there's, there's, there's the truth, and then there's the truth that we will allow the cameras to capture or that will be presented for the the cameras but again in in their minds this sense of like at all times having to manage the telereality in a sense that's also what's happening in 2010 because the search for the discovery the investigation into the event known as 2001 a space odyssey <laughs> is about who is going to control the information related to that because as the film mm. opens right we have a russian man who works for you know the soviet union in some capacity and he approaches Floyd, played by Roy Scheider, who was the sort of on the ground, you know, head of the Discovery mission. And he basically cajoles him into going with the Russian crew because uh, it's like, yeah, you know, either you come with us and like help us because you like know this shit. Or we just get there first. Like, you're not going to beat us. Mm -hmm. Right. And he's like, oh, man. Yeah. Like can't have you going up there and getting the discovery. Like. But it's, it's kind of, it's too, it's kind of like a good, the bad and the ugly situation because the point is that it's like the Russians have the means to get there, but, but really only the Americans know the, the, like the systems of the discovery. So it's kind of like, we've got one piece, you've got the other, 
we might as well pool our resources in the situation because also there is that sort of time element. They all do discover that, no pun intended, uh, that the I think that like the orbit of the discovery is decaying and eventually it is going to just like crash into Jupiter or something like that. Mm-hmm. But it's even more problematic because it's it's not a, a natural uh, pull of the spaceship toward the planet. They, they recognize that there's something there's some entity, some force pulling it. So yeah, it is this kind of like, okay. And it, it's interesting that it's like, it's the Russian who ultimately kind of proposes that very pragmatic solution in the midst of the Cold War. And I think speaks again to what Hyams is ultimately trying to get at here. That it's like, you know, it's the 1980s for God's sakes. You know, the Russians have been more or less always presented in American films, certainly during this era, as just these, these just evil baddies, hell bent on, on, you know, they'd rather see the world burn than share it with the United States. But it's actually, you know, it's the Russians themselves who kind of, at least at first, seem to be the more willing to cooperate. And this is where, Marsh, you were getting at before, the, like the, the jabs, Hyams jabs at Reagan come in because there's that conversation about, well, the Russians are for it, but now we have to sell it to our president. Tell him we're screwed if we don't go. Tell him if we do go, we'll lie. Give the Russians false information. Tell him that, he'll love that. He might. And the new head of like the space organization even says, you know, sometimes there's nice things about having a reactionary president. He calls the fucking, yes, right. the, the, the United States basically calls Reagan a reactionary. And it's like, well, if we, if we pose this whole thing as us pulling a fast one on the Ruskies, he'll love it. He'll be all for it. Yeah. <laughs> I did really like that opening scene when Roy Schneider as Haywood is having that conversation with the Russian ambassador or whoever that dude was just like giving him the skinny on like, hey, we got to team up to get this shit figured out. Because I also think that that scene does a really good job of establishing the aesthetic difference between itself and 2001 A Space Odyssey because it's almost like a trick initially when you think about the symmetrical modernist compositions that like make up the design of 2001. And here we have Haywood who's like tending to these giant satellite dishes. And it's this like extreme wide shot that does have a great deal of symmetry involved in it, where we have like all these shots expanding across the big scope frame. Everything feels huge, like a big sci-fi movie. And as they get closer and as they start, as in the two men, as they start talking more and more about like what's coming next, what they're trying to like plan out here, these compositions get much smaller and there's lots of cuts back and forth between this very limited space, which is this like big stairwell, both ascending the stairs and going down. The Russian man mentions like, "Uh, my heart's not good enough for this. Like I I can't climb up all these stairs. And Mm -hmm. Haywood's like, well, here, I'll like meet you in the middle somewhat. And, you know, this is like a sequence that may have played out in a single shot and obviously wouldn't have been nearly as chatty probably in in 2001. And here it's like we open with this, you know, big symmetrical image and then we start to get into the rhythm of what Hyams is doing, trying to establish that this film is going to look and feel a lot different 
than the predecessor. This is not an emulation of that experience as much as it is an investigation of it. Yeah, and very practically speaking as well, I think that the question that probably pops into a lot of people's heads if they haven't seen this movie, just like even finding out that it exists, it's like, what? Like, why, you know, like, what the fuck is going on here? And like, what did Kubrick have to say? I think that's what a lot of people wonder about. And if you watch interviews with Hyams from the time, that's that's like one of the first things that people are even asking. It's like, well, first of all, why didn't Kubrick direct? You know, it's like it's 84. Kubrick is still at the, you know, at the top of his game. It's like, why didn't Kubrick? And and apparently, you know, Kubrick had no desire whatsoever to like revisit any of this. He's like, I made the movie, you know, I'm not fucking, I'm not going back there. But Hyams and him uh, have a, had a pretty good friendship from what I understand. Like a Hyams was a, a, a very, you know, very much, uh, enamored with Kubrick and, and certainly enamored with, with 2001, but he did have conversations with, with Kubrick. And, and I think, you know, respectfully wanted to just basically say to him, look, you know, I'm not trying to, you know, I'm not trying to remake 2001. I'm not trying to do that. I want to, I like this material and I want to do my own thing with it. And, and apparently, you know, Kubrick was, was totally on board with that and just said like, man, don't worry about 2001. Don't worry about me, make your film. And, and they had a very like respectful, uh, relationship with it. I I figured because did you guys catch the Stanley Kubrick cameo in the movie? Yeah. It's beautiful. Very nice. Yeah. Him on the cover as the communist president of a yeah. Time magazine. Very funny. And that was Arthur C. Clarke, right? As the the, uh, the American president. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a funny drawing of the two of them. But something I don't know if either of you are aware of is that uh, Peter Himes and Stanley Kubrick, both born on July 26. Different years, but same day. Both July 26 babies. So cosmically, I think very, very connected (laughs) in being two very different directors. I feel like people even bringing that up to Hyams is so stupid because it's also Mm -hmm. a misread on Kubrick. Like, oh, he's this like technical wizard. So he's like some cold asshole. Like Hyams appealed to him and he was like, yeah, man, that's cool. Like, of course, why wouldn't he? He's not like, yeah. he's, a, he's a person, you know? Yeah. Like, he's not a machine like people think he is, you know? Like, yeah. And, and you know, it's like, again, like, Hyams, I think, was, and I watched a lot of interviews with him, and, like, I could see, like, he was getting very annoyed with the line of questioning of people, like, trying to to sort of link these two films. And I think it's it's partly just because 2001 has such a, a huge place in... Yeah, I mean, you could say the history of of cinema, the history of American cinema. And, you know, Hyams, uh, somebody brought up that in like one of the test screenings that the audience applauded. They they broke out into spontaneous applause when the first shot of the Discovery, the spaceship from 2001 popped up on screen, you know, and these interviews were, were like, and people, you could see, they were just so excited to see the Discovery and to remember 2000, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, jumped down. I think it was Bobby Wygant. You know, we love Bobby yeah, Wygant. Yeah, I love friend Bobby. Of the, friend of the pod, Bobby Wygant. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Himes like defensively then jumped up. I mean, not physically, you know, but basically it was like, yeah, you know, we did a 
test audience for a bunch of like 10 year olds who'd never seen or heard of 2001 and they also applauded. They applauded because it was a cool moment in the movie. They have no idea what the hell that spaceship is, but kids know drama, kids know entertainment. And and guess who also knows drama and entertainment? Peter fucking Hyams. But this is really just a film that takes place in that universe more than this is a direct sequel to 2001. I, that's the way I view it anyway. It's also the kind of film where Roy Schneider has like a big Schneider. pool. Roy Schneider has a big <laughs> pool of like dolphins in his house. And I think oh, that yes. that's like enough to separate the two films as their own individual <laughs> works of art. <laughs> I love those little like touches of, of just like, you know, futurism that, that they, they, you know, put into this film, these little like, you know, peppered moments of like, well, in the future, it's like in the future, we will all have pet dolphins in our home. <laughs> yeah. you know? Feeding the dolphins <laughs> before dinner. Yeah. So silly. Fucking wild. I feel like we should mention some of the supporting cast in 2010, because it's, uh, you know, it's a stacked movie, a, a good amount of characters. We've got Helen Mirren as the sort of, you know, s- steely resolved, uh, kind of like captain of the Russians or whatever. Mm-hmm. Doing a funny uh, accent. And then, of course, to to everyone's delight, you know, aside from, from Scheider as Floyd, uh, Haywood Floyd, we get... John Lithgow as Walter Kurnow, the engineer, and Bob Balaban as Chandra, the University of Chicago professor programmer of hell. <laughs> and to me, look, I, I, I love that stuff, especially with, with Balaban, who's basically like in love you know, with Hal and also Sal, uh, which is in his office, voiced by an uncredited Candace Bergen. Uh, oh. But there's there's all this like weird sexual energy between Bob Balaman and his machines throughout the movie that I think is like just this kind of perverse touch that I really, uh, really appreciate. And then Lithgow uh, has kind of like really a ton of, of screen time in the middle of this movie as he bonds with Max, the uh, his like Russian counterpart. And I read in the Clark book, they're bisexual and they have a romance. Wow. And now and, and like now thinking about it, I did not think about it at the time because I'm naive and straight. But like there are these like prolonged glances and touches that they sort of give each other that I think can, you know, there is subtext to be read that maybe there's something between them. Um, but not, you know, again. It's hot, you know, yeah, right. So they're not going to do it. The um, you say he has like a lot of screen time in the middle of the movie. <laughs> he also takes up like a great deal of the soundtrack in the middle of the movie because I, you know, I should say the you know, it, it, like in in the Faraki film, I love the English language narration because I think the woman's voice is like very very pleasant to listen to and I find it relaxing. It's almost like ASMR. But the middle of the film with John Lithgow in 2010, when he's like in his spacesuit and he's like floating to the Discovery to start working on it, that whole sequence has to be like, just to me personally, like the inverse of ASMR. Yeah. The sound of John Lithgow hyperventilating for like 12 minutes of this movie, I was losing my mind. I was mm-hmm. so deeply unsettled. It was just a noise I did not want to listen to. Yeah. And they like force you to hear that front and center for so long. 
15 meters. Look straight ahead. The center section is hardly moving. That's where we'll grab hold. 10 meters. You're doing great, corner. 5 meters. 4, 3, 2, 1. I made it. I made it. Just hook yourself on there. I'm hooking on. Very good. I am right behind you. I'm here. You look straight ahead. Look, I mean, Marsh kind of brought this up earlier, but I, I personally think that that the the soundscape of this film is is amazing. And, oh, it is and that sequence, yeah. and that sequence is 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 unbelievable because he's able to basically just use that the rhythm of his breathing and it's really kind of rasping harsh like quality filtered through his suit and the microphones and them you know on board the spaceship like hearing this guy on the verge of a panic attack doing a spacewalk it's amazing like the rhythm of that sequence how his breathing like builds at times because you know all of us we want to scream at him just like fucking calm down you know like just slow yeah. you're breathing out, chill out <laughs> chill, yeah. Dude, yeah and everybody is and dude again you talk about the connection between him and max and like max the way he's just trying to calm him to not lose his cool to work through this moment of just deep desperate panic uh i thought was like brilliant and that's again where you get to this sort of like sweetheart of the film that that hyams is trying to you know constantly like kind of hit us with like we're better together folks we can work together we can overcome our our national barriers to just like solve problems and you know help each other work through difficult situations and i also march just because you brought it up wanted to say again like the the real like man i think like my my favorite aspect of this movie are like those moments of bob balaban just like talking to computers calibrating hal's voice for like three minutes oh that seems incredible my favorite scene in the movie <laughs> And it's funny because just all he had to do was push in every single one of them. All of them them at the same time. (laughs) Yeah, but he still does it like one at a time just to hear how different Hal's voice is. You don't know what order it's got to go in. (laughs) But, you know, I think think, like this is another, you know, thematic 
or you know spiritual or philosophical connection between the two films uh, is you know how Balaban's character, you know, Dr. Chandra, who again in the novel has a much longer last name because he's Indian. So, uh, but, you know, they just shortened it and made him a white guy in the movie and, you know, cast Bob Balaban. But, but, you know, as Chandra, like his main concern for being there is like how this, 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 you know, state of the art, one of a kind artificial intelligence that he created that he doesn't view as a, as a computer program, you know, unlike everyone else, he really does see Hal as this sort of like non corporeal being, regardless of whether you're a carbon life form or a silicone life form, you deserve respect. But the 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 you know, in terms of the the you know, Hyams coming around and answering the the questions of the previous film, right? Like, why did Hal go completely, you know, homicidal in the first film? They, they answer that question in, I think, an interesting way that ties it to what Faraki's project is really about. The, the answer to the question in this film is essentially that, you know, the government, like, told Hal to lie to the astronauts. Like, the government told Hal to keep secrets from the astronauts, right? That there were, like, two sets of, of mission parameters and that it was up to Hal to sort of like handle this kind of like espionage and subterfuge. And he's like, this is a, 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 a thing that was sort of created to handle, you know, information logically and, and clearly and directly. And, and it was like, we then tried to teach it how to lie. And it basically like, became paranoid and went nuts, you know, because it didn't understand, like, why the fuck you would lie. But, like, a huge turning point in this film, then, is when they basically are telling Bob Balaban to, like, lie to Hal again, you know? And again, it, it like, goes back to, to me, to, like, Faraki's film about, like, the media and us. And it's like, you know, the media has no respect for us in the long run, right? Like it's all about, you know, giving us a, a, a sweet story that'll just simply calm us down instead of like presenting information to us logically, clearly, uh, without ulterior motives. Yeah, and it's interesting thinking about the way that even the revolutionaries have to code switch almost because of the way they're performing when they know that they're being watched, when they know that they're being filtered through the media. Because we have all that raw footage of the demonstrators inside the television studio arguing with each other, getting heated, talking about like, okay, these are the agenda items. This is how we're going to address the public. And then they finally get organized. The event is about to go live. They start the countdown. And then like a man takes a deep breath and he starts like announcing to the public of Romania, like, okay, these are the next steps. And then someone behind the camera is like, wait, no, not yet. Like yeah. you, you jumped in too early, like two more seconds. Brothers, not yet. Yeah. Fraților. Fraților, mulțumită lui Dumnezeu, ne aflăm în studiourile televiziunii. It's so funny. It's amazing, but it does even make me think about, like, yeah, that they have to, they even are acknowledging the fact that they're being filtered through the media. There's even a funny, like, snake-eating-its-tail moment that I love near the end of Videograms of a Revolution, where 
we're reaching the point of there being the show trial and execution of Ceausescu and his wife. And Faraki gives us this footage of all of these cameramen sitting in a room together filming a television. As they're all sitting there with their cameras pointed at the TV set, the narration mentions everyone was hoping for a single camera to capture the event. And with that in mind, as TV watchers, they're also having it filtered through the cameras themselves that they are like holding up, you know, to their eyes. And what's so great about all of it is Faraki is showing us the footage of those men, not the footage that was captured of the television, right? And it's like, here are all these men with cameras thinking they're capturing history. Like, here comes the event. It might appear on my television screen. It's being delivered to me. I need to capture it myself on my own camera in order for it to be real, to make sure that there's coverage, to make sure that everyone has access to this. And yet they are missing the poetry of the entire situation of the room because they're there as it's happening. And here, film is making new history. It's capturing these people filming a television. It creates an entirely new narrative out of that history. It creates new history. But again, it goes back to like problems. And, and I'm like, just I'm hearing again all my, my professors with like, uh, you know, describing events or things as an event or labeling something mm -hmm. a, an event because you know once the the sort of mediation enters the picture once the concerns about staging once the concerns about camera positioning lighting you know uh cues you know when we when we start when we stop what we say what we don't say comes into play it's like that's not really the event you know because these conversations happened actually off camera right it was like when those two guys go in the room like in there that's probably more you know honest than anything we got after they left the room, once they came back in front of the cameras and started saying what was going to happen next. But the, the, the things that are always outside of the frame, again, going back to our conversation uh, about ECLR with Anne-Marie Mieville saying like, you know, that's not interesting. This is what's interesting. Let's keep rolling. And now here you start to direct this woman. Like that's the like event was you standing there directing somebody, not right. ultimately the production itself that we saw, right? Again, total artifice, total reality. That's what cinema is. Total artifice, total reality. The artifice is the thing that got broadcast onto our TV screens. The total reality was a bunch of bearded guys screaming and shouting at each other in a room for a minute, you know, not the announcement that was, that was delivered like nine times before they nailed it, you know, especially since what's going on, you know, outside, right. Is this, is this a revolution? Is this a people's revolution? Is this the people's will? A lot of times we're seeing, Members of the Ceausescu regime, current members of the security forces, the secret police, members of the army try to weasel their way into this new government, you know? So I do think that closed door meeting is so crucial because it's like, 
yes, this is a revolution, but at the end of the day, there are still powerful men going into back rooms and striking deals. You want to talk about connecting these films, televisual reality. Ronald Reagan was a fucking movie star president. And in the case of Videograms, they basically, at a certain point, they bring in, I don't remember his name, but they bring in this sort of like, quasi-opposition leader who used to be a part of the Central Committee and they just throw him in front of the camera because like he's vaguely agreed upon that like he was he was resistant to Ceausescu. Well, guess who they elected their first president? That that guy. Because he was the guy that they threw on TV and were like, listen to this guy. Yeah. The National Salvation Front. And that is where... Yes, that election was already won by just, this is the guy. All right, listen to what he has to say, you know? Mm -hmm. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And like, and again, like that's, that's so much of the, the play in this film is like seeing the, the, uh, what I feel you see in, in, in so many explorations of, of revolution and people who have written on revolutions, explored revolutions, is like the the sort of opportunistic elements that 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 look at this moment of spontaneous like the event, you know, people suddenly jumping up onto a tank with a bunch of soldiers and saying, stand with us. Like that disruption of the social order in a second, right? You know, in a in a moment, right? Are then the people have to like leap in these opportunistic hacks who've spent their entire life in one fucking bureaucracy or another going, oh, okay, we're going this way now. Quick, we've got to seize all this energy. We've got to direct it somewhere. Who should we direct it towards? This guy, he 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 seems good, <laughs> you know, right? Like, oh, yeah. Well, well, you know, and you see the, the machinations, right, behind the scenes, as you've said, that are preventing this thing from like really sort of organically working its way out already it's being funneled in certain directions and you alluded to this earlier marsh but but we get that other really like haunting moment where you know we we got cameras on a scene with certain soldiers and they're 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 looking at a building and they've been told that that there are shooters in the building there's snipers in the building and they're firing at at people and and Faraki plays with this idea or introduces this I mean, I don't I don't know if you want to call it a conspiracy, right? But that some of the gunfire and some of these moments of of you know people reporting being like fired upon may have been elements of this behind the scenes apparatus trying to to instill fear and and instill themselves as you know, the, the guardians, the only, you know, trust us because we'll protect you from that to like funnel people's paranoia and fear. And, and, and he talks about like weaponizing that, that fear by essentially the, the, the people behind the scenes. Even thinking about those conspiracies and all the chaos and all the confusion, I love how sort of the overall feeling of this chaos is 
sort of perfectly summed up by that man who is sitting on the floor next to that radiator who just lets out a big sigh and says like i don't even know what vlad is doing like he's (laughs) he's out there doing his own thing and it's like there is so much paranoia but there's also so much fatigue those revolutionaries look so tired in this movie all the time If you know anything about revolutions throughout history, you know that those motherfuckers did not sleep. You cannot make revolution while sleeping. Uh, And it is, yeah, it is a really gnarly thing. I was going to say, you know, I think the one moment from Videograms that I I will always remember and was so happy to just see it pop up again is when uh, there's, there's a shot from inside a car, you know, just some like... Some guys are just like filming these yeah. amateurs, uh, and one of them goes. To think it was just an idiot we were afraid of. People had to die to get rid of him, <laughs> and they're just pondering that fact now that he, you know, flew off in a helicopter like a total fucking coward. Like that idiot, you mm-hmm. know, just like how quickly those those things can change, and how unimportant, you know, certain things, you know, seemed at that moment, and just like wow, like why didn't we do this earlier? You know, mm-hmm. like that sort of realization. I think that's why when when I, you know, watch things like this. I think when when I look in history at revolutions and revolutionary moments and 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 there's a part of me that always just kind of gets so so sad, so sort of bummed out. You know, I, I'm always sort of like, God, it's so fucking simple. Like, why why can't we figure it out? You know, like yeah. that realization that that he's like. These are just dumb assholes. It's like, yes, they're all dumb assholes, you know? Like, they're all just sitting there in their fucking suits, organizing their, quote, events for us to tune into live at 7 p.m., you know, 5 p.m. fucking Pacific or whatever, you know? Like, and to 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 listen to to every word they say with bated breath and and trust them, you know, they're going to keep us safe from the goddamn Russians or the fucking terrorists or whoever, you know, it's like, it's so fucking simple. And yet not at all, it, not at all, you know? Yeah. And I, I just, I, it, 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 it honestly just bums me out sometimes because I'm like, man, that's so amazing. And then, oh yeah, it's all fucking, it quickly gets betrayed and turned over and, and directed towards this. And now we got McDonald's and fucking Romania. How quickly How can you get an IMF loan? You know, it turns <laughs> yeah. out very quickly, and mm-hmm. you're going to be paying that one off for a while. But yeah, it, it, it's fucked up, you know. But I, I want to talk too, I guess, about some of the the 2010 aspects we haven't really touched. You know, the more like science fiction uh, elements. Uh, because yeah, like they, they go and find the discovery, but beyond that, there are spectacular developments <laughs> happening. As Wonderful. Da- <laughs> as the, as yes, as the corporeal, uh, alien form of Dave Bowman says, something's going to happen. And I wanted to say goodbye. What's going to happen? Something wonderful. 
And from the perspective of the astronauts, uh, really, it's just like a very deeply concerning massing of lots of monoliths, along with another gigantic monolith. Uh, But they also have a particular interest in the moon Europa, which plays a part early on in the film when they like send a probe down uh, and they just, you know, they have some like weird readings. There's organic life on Europa. How could it be? This isn't possible. Uh, And then they get like zapped by some like crazy burst flare. You know, it like blows up their drone. Uh, So there's, there's all these like great things also happening as they're simply just like, all right, how do we like reboot this ship? Can we like (laughs) save, can we save Hal? Meanwhile, like the Honduras affair, the blockade, you know, uh, there's all this shit going on. Uh, and ultimately we do, yes, get Kier Dulay returning, uh, to us in various forms. He shows up in time. Very, (laughs) very, very much unstuck in time. And Bowman appears not only on the televisions of his uh, wife and, and in the hospital room of his mother, uh, but he also visits uh, Roy Scheider at a certain point. And now I got to say, obviously, 2001, one of the most radical, quote unquote, Hollywood movies ever made, right? So ambiguous, unsettled everybody. But in this fucking movie... One of my favorite edited sequences of all time is when Scheider confronts Dave Bowman, who appears first in his astronaut suit. And then over the course of this shot reverse shot conversation, he appears a different age every time it cuts back to him. He's old. He's even older. He's the fucking space baby for like one and a half (laughs) seconds. And it's just like cutting back to Scheider, who's just like watching this morphing. You know, we don't obviously see him morphing, but he's just like changing all these forms and it's done by the editing and it's so simple but it's like deeply upsetting and also kind of beautiful like it really is this crazy moment in an otherwise very you know straightforward movie um so i gotta give it up you know it's like a very to me it's a very creative scene and a creative like usage of 2001 hello dr floyd Are you? This is very difficult for me. I don't have much time. I've been allowed to give you this warning. You must leave here in two days. Allowed? By who? I can't explain. Yeah, because I think there's a great deal of ambiguity in the cuts themselves, and that's what makes it so exciting, because you wonder, is there this physical morphing? Are we seeing him, when it cuts, is is Roy Scheider seeing like him turning into like a, a gelatinous blob that then reforms as a different age? Or do you think it's like every single time he blinks and his eyes open, it's a new age, right? Like, is it the, a visual like edit in his eyeballs, you know? Yeah. Like, I love that there's still a bit of mystery of like, what does this look like, what we're seeing? You know, there's, there's limits to the film form here, but that's also the expression. You see, something's going to happen. You must leave. And you know, something I, I think Hyams handles like so well 
like in this, in the the arrival of of Bowman and his sort of, you know, his message to everyone, like, just hold your horses, don't don't start nuclear war yet, because something wonderful is coming. <laughs> something wonderful is gonna happen. It's like Hyams is such a fucking like master at handling this because, you know, I I think with him. And again, ultimately where he winds up, like where he wants to take us, like he's he's taking us for a ride and he's he's playing on our 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 modern cynicism because any time in this movie Bowman like smiles and says something wonderful's coming as audiences like our alarm bells are going off and we're like that means something terrible is going to happen you know like i know this world like this is all fucked up like he's he's warning us he's not he's not telling us like you know just sit tight this is going to be really cool he's telling us like we're all fucked it's you know it's 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 chochescu being like we just approved (laughs) we just approved (laughs) we bit raise a 10 percent increase (laughs) of the minimum wage you know like something wonderful is coming <laughs> in, 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 his, in his final live appearance when he's shot in the ditch you know <laughs> whatever but but yeah I mean like we sit there and we are like no 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 get we gotta get out of here this is bad like it's 1984 in fucking America we're all so goddamn jaded and, and like we've had the specter of of total nuclear annihilation hanging over our heads you know the sword of fucking Damocles and like Hyams just totally sets us up then for, yeah, what might be a very kind of sentimental kind of, you know, ultimate conclusion. But but I got to say, like revisiting it and rewatching it, like I was so touched by it. I really was like, this is why, you know, I find this movie such a such an like interesting object for like when it was made, what he was willing courageously to take on with the legacy of 2001. And then like, yeah, his, his little message about, about the the future, you know, if we could only see the forest for the trees, if we could only trust space fetus, Dave Bowman, you know, and just believe him that something wonderful is coming. I feel like, People overstate the fact that this movie answers uh, things from 2001. (laughs) Upon revisiting this film, I was actually impressed because, yes, Andy, it it is ultimately, you could call it sappy or you could call it humanistic. You know, I think it is a a very interesting time and place in Hollywood for Hyams to be doing this kind of film, right? But ultimately, I also think this film is... I don't want to say secretly ambiguous, but let me ask you something. Like, what did we really learn? <laughs> Jack shit. Because for, for one thing, yeah. the hell theory is simply Chandra's theory, right? They do find out that the orders, the astronauts and Hal had different orders, but that's just an inference, right? They don't understand how the monoliths work. They don't know if the monoliths are aliens. They don't know if it's God. They don't know anything about these things. And all of those mysteries remain. And, you know, you hate to see it, but there's a, there is a Bowman moving through space section of the novel. And Hyams was like, not going to do that. And threw it in the trash, you know? And you go, yeah, we don't. No, like we don't even get to go beyond the Stargate in this movie, right? Like Mm -hmm. there's still so many questions I have about everything 
that are not answered. We do, of course, get, you know, we don't have to get into the details, but there's like this, you know, reveal epilogue at the end concerning the future. But yet again, I just have more questions, you know? (laughs) And what happens to Hal? Hal is used to propel back to Earth, right? And like like you brought up earlier, there's this, you know, kind of heartbreaking and, and heartwarming scene between uh, Balaban and Hal, you know, treating him like a person. Robots should have rights, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, they, and then they use, you know, he's like, all right, we're going to, you know, you're just going to keep, going to keep going, <laughs> keep going into space, right? But then... There's maybe a hint that like Bowman somehow like brings the dis- <laughs> brings the discovery into like whatever's going on. I mean, mm-hmm. more questions, more questions. Yeah, to be honest, every time Bowman said like something wonderful is coming, I'm like, he, for all we know, he could be talking about the second Romanian revolution, right? One <laughs> that's about to happen in 2010. Um, it is it is ultimately quite vague. I do think that the delivery, though, of like, if I understood it correctly, the fact that we receive a second son yeah, hell yeah. In the universe, and it eliminates... Does does it, like, f- completely eliminate nighttime? Is that what they were suggesting? Because to me, that that's not wonderful. I, I mean, you know, I love the idea of sunshine all the time, but I also kind of hate the idea of not being able to enjoy the night. I do think the night is very beautiful. I would have been annoyed if suddenly there was a new sun... And like we had to change our entire lifestyle. Well, it's to not about to you that. anymore. It's about what's going on in <laughs> Europa. Earth, Earth is way behind. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, it's a it's a little it's a little confusing, right? But I had to like kind of try to get more of synopsis of the the novel to I think make yeah. sense of some of that, Ryan. Because in the novel, they explain that like that that second sun really burns you know, obviously because of distance or whatever, brightly on Europa. And so Europa is now bathed in Uh. like total sunlight on one side of it and total darkness on the other or some shit like that. But for, for us on earth, it's just that we have this like second ball in the sky, the second, you know, just like star Wars. Yeah. Yeah. Just like (laughs) star Wars. Yeah. We get this is like second ball in the sky, but we wouldn't have total Cause yes, I especially would fucking flip out. If you suddenly came back from that mission, you guys were like, well, we did it. It's going to be bright all the time. <laughs> I think everybody would be like, push the goddamn button. Like, let's get it over with, dude. We got to get some sleep. I'm going to lose my mind. You know? Do you yeah. guys think that the Russian cosmonauts in 2010 watched White Sun of the Desert before they went on their discovery mission? Oh, uh, yeah, they must have. Yeah, that's a good point. And dude, just <laughs> imagine getting to watch that then also with... Roy Scheider, John Lithgow, and Bob Balaban, because they would make the Americans watch it too. Like, damn that, Hyams, you're you great, but you missed, yeah, you missed a, a really great moment uh, to have just a scene, a little scene of them all sitting there watching White Sun of the Desert together. What unites us, like the movies? <laughs> yeah, hell yeah, yeah. I wonder if Helen Mirren watched White Sun of the Desert in preparation for the role. That was. It's like thinking about Liv Ullman watching Shrek at Cannes. You know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I gotta point out they two friends of the pod, two friends of the pod at the height of the Cold War called, uh, you know, for us to reach across the aisle. 
to our former allies, uh, Peter Hyams and Walter Hill with Red Heat. You know, like think about all we can accomplish if we put aside, you know, the if we if we tear down the Iron Curtain. You know, we can we can we can do this. We can create a second sun. We can kick the shit out of a bunch of drug dealers. Like, man, what couldn't we achieve if we just all learned to get along? And in a way, imagine all we could achieve if we take a closer look at these technical difficulties and try to actually understand what might be going on. I love that Dave Bowman does come through the static onto a television to talk to his wife. He he breaks through what we think is a technical difficulty ends up being a moment of reconnection and beauty. There's a great moment in videograms where they say, and suddenly at this point, this glitch happened. And all of a sudden the television camera just starts like breaking down and we get these like shapes appearing on screen and the, the glitch gets really loud, but it's also kind of beautiful. And at the, and that still ends up being a preoccupation. The beauty of all these images that like, yes, they are decaying, but there's, there's still something aesthetically pleasing here. And then even beyond that, what is this technical difficulty? How can we try and piece together our world and start anew? Well, and this, this goes back to what, you know, uh, my, my professors in Edinburgh were really trying to drum into our heads. And I, I only kind of made sense of it later when I, when I did a deep dive into Virilio's theory of accidents, the theory of the accident. If a true event is a disruption, a disruption in, in, in the, the, the order, you know, you think about September 11th, right? Um, September 11th, Often. right? The, the, yeah, the, the disruption. <laughs> Something of, wonderful is about to happen. <laughs> right. The, yeah, yeah, dude. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. The, seeing that as an event was, was, you know, because of also seeing the way that the media just completely like fucking fell apart initially. Like that's when it's a, it's, it's an event when there's a total disruption in the order. Uh, in, in the world of philosophy, you know, uh, disruptions are moments when we can actually like come up with a, with a concept, you know, that's where, where a becoming can start to, to manifest itself only through a, a disruption, a break, a break in how we think, how we, how we saw something. And for Virilio, you know, for him, the accident, an accident of any kind is ultimately a positive event. And I think, Ryan, this is what you're getting at here, right? Virilio says, yes, uh, uh, an accident is a positive event ultimately because in that accident, that disruption, that break, we should be able then to, to see something we previously didn't, right? To improve something in our life because of that break, that disruption, that accident. On the most simple level, right? It's like, imagine new cars, you know, when cars were first going around and people were, were going through windshields, it took that accident for someone to go seatbelts, <laughs> you know, like, and now we're all safer because of it, you know, because of this accident. But Virilio uses that even in, in a larger, you know, uh, more philosophical and at times, you know, political way that, that we should look at accidents and we should look at those disruptions for things that we previously prior to that event didn't see. And again, this gets back to our sort of like, sadness in so many of these moments is that 
we don't learn from so many of our accidents, that we don't learn from so many of our technical difficulties. All that seems to happen in, in a lot of these situations is that eventually they they come back on TV and, and sorry for those technical difficulties, we now return to our regularly scheduled program, you know, and life goes on being as shitty as it was, you know, that they, they absorbed the blow. They, 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 instead of choosing to listen to Dave Bowman and look for that wonderful thing in this disruption, in this moment of static, in that, that break from our, from our, our TV, you know, fucking program, uh, we're watching. And I love in 2010, if you noticed it in that moment where Bowman does like, you know, take over the television, he comes in between two fucking commercials. I fucking love it. Right. And, and I think that that's a very conscious choice for Hyams to this point. Right. It's like, it's like folks, it's there, it's there to be seen, but focus on the disruption, focus on the accident, not someone who's trying to, to, to explain, uh, how that wasn't really an accident at all. You know, like we can learn from it, but only if we, we ultimately seek out the disruptions more than the, the solution simply to, uh, what has caused that disruption in the moment? If that makes any sense, I'm I'm, I'm starting to ramble here. I think go off. <laughs> well, I guess in in seeing the beautiful light smears of of the decaying VHS tapes in in videograms of a revolution, I too felt like I was finding new beauty in the disruption, and I was finding new meaning out of this material. And I guess I would just ask you that, Marsh. What what sort of uh, films have have you thought, you know, while you're watching, like, ah, like, is my TV busted and you tried to fix it? Or even then we're depicting a, a certain type of technical difficulty that made you see the world uh, in a new way and maybe helped you find new solutions. So have there been any movies like that for you? I don't know if I'd go that far. Well, a lot of lofty <laughs> rhetoric, but uh, two, two that came to mind, you know, one, of course, the wonderful lo-fi John Carpenter, Dan O'Bannon collaboration, Dark Star, which features, of course, to me, uh, one of the great technical difficulties moments in cinema when a, a man has to have a philosophical argument with an armed atomic bomb in outer space. Uh, and that, to me, is, you know... One of the great moments in uh, both of those uh, wonderful filmmakers' careers. Uh, and on the other hand, you know, what what occurred to me was uh, Je t'aime, Je t'aime, the great mm -hmm. Alain René uh, film from 1968, where uh, a, a man, you know, goes to participate in this kind of like time travel uh, situation I don't I, it's been a while but uh it gets all glitched up and he just like remembers his life out of order as he's like trapped in this time machine you know in this beautiful Renee editing way you know just a wonderful movie uh of yeah just like glitching out and remembering your life pretty good stuff pretty good stuff well thanks guys I had a lot of fun this week, looking at all these uh, all these difficulties, uh, both technical and human, you know, to be honest. But yeah. uh, it was my turn this week. But next week, it is Andy's turn to pick the topic. What's on the docket? Well, you know, knowing, of course, that 
next week, when it's my topic, will be episode 69. I would be remiss if I didn't <laughs> play with that number a little bit, you know? I mean, that's such a, a charged number. Uh, and, you know, I, I could go dirty, but I've had some dirty experiences uh, with this podcast in the last several months that, you know, I've left a... A uh, certain taste in my mouth that I'm still trying to work out. I'm looking at you, Ryan, during our just the two of us episode. Uh, I'm still oh, I'm still working through all that. I thought you were going to bring up gas pump girls. No, 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 no. Something something a little seedier than gas pump yeah. girls, really. <laughs> but you know what? I then realized, hey, one of my favorite years in cinema is 1969. I think one of my all-time favorite films was released in 1969. But it's a, a good year, an interesting year for world cinema. So let's lean into it. 69, a very good year. Indeed it is. <laughs> I'll try and I'll still try and find a sexy one though. Wouldn't be hard. I think uh <laughs> Midnight Midnight Cowboy won Midnight Cowboy won Best Picture, you know? As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. You can tell them that you remember when there was a pitch black sky with no bright star and people feared the night. You can tell them when we were alone when we couldn't point to the light and say to ourselves, there is life out there. Someday, the children of the new sun will meet the children of the old. I think they will be our friends. You can tell your children of the day when everyone looked up and realized that we were only tenants of this world. We have been given a new lease and a warning from the land. Shouts surge up. His speech stops. The camera wobbles. A technical disturbance. The broadcast is interrupted. What had occurred? <laughs> <laughs>